This is a podcast from 3RRR 102.7 FM in Melbourne, truly independent community radio. Good morning, everybody, and welcome to another episode of Einstein and Go-Go. I'm Dr. Shane. You are listening to 3RRR. A big thanks to the team from Radiotherapy. We've got you now for a good hour of science. In the studio with me is Dr. Laura. Good morning, madam. Good morning, Dr. Shane. You hyped up on your third coffee, ready to go? Coffee number three, ready to go. Jeez, I feel like I should have had another cup of tea. I've had one cup of tea. And it's, <laughs> it's here, I'm halfway through it. I'm going to be a bit slow, I suspect, compared to you today. It'll be a good contrast to me. You know I'm always fast. <laughs> now, folks, we've got, uh, we've got some news for you. It's just me and Laura today. Uh, Dr. Lauren was coming in, but she's lost her voice. Can't get a good co-host these days. I know. It's, uh, and it's, it's not even the infectious immunologist that's ill. Yeah, that's right. It should be you. You're the one with all the dodgy, dodgy stuff in your lab. Uh, no, Lauren has lost her voice, and for for those of you who know Lauren, that's I mean, it's like tying her hands behind her back. She's fantastic. Um, she's a great talker, and with her better voice, I don't even know what to say. Um, but we hope she gets well because she um, sent me an urgent text this morning, and she wasn't feeling too good. Anyway, we've got some uh, news for you, and then we've got a couple of interviews. One which I recorded during the week, which is fascinating, with um, a woman who quit her PhD. So we talk a lot about the success of science and the success of people doing their PhDs, but we thought it would be good to have a discussion about someone who's taken a different path. So this is someone with a solid science background, a you know, bachelor's degree and so forth in science, but decided not to continue her PhD, and she tells us why, which is, which is really good. And then a bit later in the show, we're going to um, revisit uh, a great interview that I had the privilege of doing a few years back with uh, Jane Goodall. And so you'll be hearing that one as well. But first of all, we're going to do some news. Dr. Laura, what do you got? Well, I've got a story which is getting a huge amount of press at the moment. You guys may have heard of it. It's called the Lost Wallet Study. And hmm. so this was published in Science, top-ranking journal. Because, of course, this, is pretty, you know, this would have a lot of interest, pretty popular study. It's called Civic Honesty Around the Globe. So this was a really large-scale field experiment. It took three years to do, and it involved the use of faked lost wallets. Faked lost wallets. Yeah, they were, they were fake, obviously. Okay, okay. So, okay, it's a very controlled study. So it's a social experiment, and the whole point of the experiment was to look at, well, whether, whether people are honest. It, it, was, it was to examine honesty versus self-interest, basically. Yeah. So this involved uh, more than 17,000 fake lost wallets. It was over 355 major cities in 40 countries. And so what they did is they had a dozen research assistants, coolest job ever, they're just getting to you know, travel globally to 40 different countries. And these research assistants would go into places of work and they would take these lost wallets. And these wallets would um, include money of, you know, the local currency and they'd, they'd rush in as a tourist and they would go into um, post offices or museums or banks. They'd go in with the lost wallet. They would say, I'm a tourist. I've just found this on the street. Can you please take care of this? Um, and then they'd be like, I've got to go. And they'd run out. And this oh. unwitting employee becomes an experimental subject oh, at this point. Yeah. Okay, so these wallets, they have, um, they were, it was controlled where there were three types of wallets. There was wallets with no money in them, wallets with $13 of the local currency, or wallets with $95 Ooh, in them. Yeah. And there was also a grocery list and a key, and there was um, a contact email address um, within the wallet, but no phone number. So then they could look at the reporting rates by coming in by email, because mm. this is like 17,300 wallets sort of going nationwide now. A lot of wallets. A yeah. lot of wallets. A lot of money. A lot of money. So, um, but... Yes, I mean, science is expensive, so, you know, $13 is, you know, pretty much not a lot. But anyway, okay, so then they reported the reporting rates, and this is really interesting. So what would you expect? Would Would you be more likely to return a wallet if it had more money or less money in it? Uh, That's a really interesting question. So I think um, I would be more likely to return a wallet with more money in it. Well, yeah, you're on the radio. You can't really say otherwise, can you? Yeah, no, I can't. Um, But, you know, I mean... The ninety dollar wallet. I mean, you know, I found that wallet had seventy bucks in it. You know, and I want to give it back. Well, is that what? Yes, yeah, so pretty much. Works? People across, take a look at it and they keep the rest. Across the board, it was actually the, the wallets with more money and that were more likely to get returned. Yeah. And people thought it's because you know maybe if you, you if you're busy you're in the middle of your day and you get a wallet with no money you're just like I can't be bothered to deal with this. But if you get something that's substantial then you don't want to seem like a thief so you tend to do the right thing. Yeah. And this is what happened in all countries apart from. Let me check Mexico and Peru. Okay. So thirty eight countries across the board that was the trend that you would get. You know, it was a 
in the US, let me give you the stats, 72% of um, all subjects return the wallets if there was more money in them, 40% if um, return the wallets if there was no money in them. So the, the interesting thing for me about this is, um, and, and this is maybe a tainting in the, in the way the experiment's done, but the person who gets the wallet is in a known location. Yep. It's not a random person. So and they're, they're at work. They're at work. So They've they got could, a work mindset you know, on if, as well. For example, some, you'd sort of, I think you'd be sort of thinking, okay, this person's given me this wallet. There's a way to know that I'm the one with the wallet yep. here because I work here. Whereas if it was just given to a random person or left on a seat, because this happened to a friend of mine. They, they, they left, some, uh, left a handbag on a bench seat in a mall in Japan, in Tokyo, and came back two hours later and it was still there because that you, know, you yep. tend to get things back in Japan. And uh, you know, that's a different sort of test, I think, to a, a person who's known. Yeah, absolutely. Know. You're, you're a professional person, you're at work, you're in the middle of a work day, and so you've got that sort of mindset on. But one kind of good thing about having this sort of sampling bias is that across globally, everybody's in the same boat. Same boat. And mm. then they looked at, you know, what were the different reporting rates between different countries? And this was really interesting. So the countries with the highest reporting rates were Switzerland, Norway, Netherlands. Australia was like, not so bad, but not so great. Actually, the UK was sort of in the middle of the 40 countries. Yeah. The lowest rates of reporting that the wallets were China and Morocco. And okay. so, you know, they at least they controlled for what people did within these different countries mm. across the mm. board. Interesting. Yeah. Well, it's one of those things where I guess what, you know, what would promote someone to keep it? Like what level? I, I wonder if there was a substantial amount of money in the wallet, would it switch back again? Yeah. You know, like if there was a thousand dollars in the wallet, like, well, I'm keeping this sucker. <laughs> <laughs> it's a thousand bucks. Um, yeah, but people have different attitudes towards these things. Uh, I suspect that also there's a big dependence on what other things are in the wallet. Yep. You know, so if you had a a, a medical alert card of some type, you know, yeah, that, would, they, that would preference different activities as well. I suspect. They did have one variable where they put a key in the wallet, something that mm. would be valuable to the person whose wallet it was, but of no value to anybody else. And you were more likely to get the wallet back yeah. if there was a key in the wallet Very as well. Very interesting. Hmm. Yeah, cool study. And people are funding this, huh? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure it's... More than good. half a million dollars for that study. <laughs> oh, boy. <laughs> oh, boy. Let's look at the cash. Well, here's a study that I don't think costs quite as, as much. Um, one of the things that we, we all know very well is when the, you know, well, I wasn't there personally, but when the big asteroid hit and the dinosaurs were eliminated about 65 million years ago, we know that story really well. What we don't know is, or we don't hear about as much, is the massive hit to the ecosystem in general due to the, you know, the blocking out of the sunlight at the time. So it wasn't just dinosaurs. Yep. It was birds. It was everything, you know, and, and particularly plants. And yeah, so but people want to hear about dinosaurs. Oh, yeah, yeah. well, because, <laughs> because we still have birds and we still have plants and we still have insects. Um, but dinosaurs we don't have. So, they, you know, they got completely wiped out. But a lot of other species got wiped out as well. And a lot of species took a real hard hit. And interestingly enough, a lot of evolution occurred after that, of course, because, you know, the pressures on various species to change was very, very high. But there's one group, actually, that, um, interestingly enough, uh, did really well out of that. And that was the, the group of that weird um, scenario of symbiosis between fungi and algae, you know, okay. called lichens. Yeah. So these are the things if you're walking down on the down the street and you often you'll see stuff that's sort of dark coloured or it might look like chewing gum on the ground and things like that. Um, that's often lichen. So it's a it's a it's a combination of two life forms essentially um, that are working together symbiotically, and all they really need to to survive is just crap. You know, like. Um, dead stuff it doesn't necessarily need a lot of sunlight um, but they do um, have the ability to do photosynthesis so they can actually fulfill the role of plants in some regards okay. um, in a darkened earth without having to have all those big leafy structures and some of the lichens actually um, can have very you know sophisticated uh, 3d structures they're not just you know simple stuff they can be quite detailed and the the interesting thing is these these um, particular materials did really well post that big, you know, global catastrophe. And what um, some researchers have been looking at, and these are these are from the Field Museum at the um, Academia Sinica in Taipei, and it's a guy named Jin Peng Hung, and he's he's been looking at how much uh, lichens actually evolved. And there's this thing, I, I didn't realise you could do this, but when you take relatively some of these simple organisms and you look at the way in which DNA is translated from one generation to the next to the next, and each time that happens there's often an error, a copying yep. error, and if you know what that rate of error is, you can sort of backtrack 
and work out how much it's evolved over time. And if you have two different life forms or two different versions of, say, the lichen, for example, and you backtrack and you know this rate, you can work out when they were together. So was he going all the way back? All the way back. And he was looking back at, okay, so when, when did some of these lichens have a common an- ancestry? So how far back do you go before you work out these things were together? And what that tells you then is how much evolution was happening back then, how much they were branching off, how much they were changing. And it seemed as though, um, you know, they don't have a lot of a lot of fossilised lichens they can use from that period. There's a small number, but they have a lot of common current ones and they can go back and look with the DNA at you know how many of these were together and at what time and what that tells them is that around this period there was a huge amount of evolution of these these particular lichens and they were actually doing really well they were spreading and they were changing and they were adapting and the, they were taking on some of the roles that plants had previously taken on so which kind of makes sense because the plants have taken a hit so yeah. and it also makes sense because you've got these scenarios where you have lichens that are basically two different sort of life forms together and so whereas one might be more plant-like and take a bit of a hit the other one that's sort of symbiotically living with it doesn't and they work collectively and manage to survive so it's a you know lichens i find are pretty fascinating because they're kind of you know not quite this not quite that they're sort of in the middle and they've got some really interesting features but they are they did manage to do a lot of the roles that um that you know weren't there before so um part of the interest in this work of course is that as we're you know currently destroying the place um <laughs> you, you wonder where there'll be similar similar ad- adaptations in in things like lichens because they they can do a lot of stuff that plants can't and they can do a lot of stuff that other life forms can't so anyway i thought that was interesting we don't we don't normally when talk people about talk about well we don't talk about lichens we're doing you know the dinosaurs but hey that was a glorious period for the lichens they, just went they, were, right they off. really won we don't talk about that so much, so it's uh, it's one of those things that I find is a little a little a tad interesting, you might say, a tad interesting. Anyway, folks, we're going to play a few station announcements, and when we come back, we're going to be uh, talking with Toby Hendy, who is the professional YouTuber, which I think it might be the first one we've had on the show. I'm not sure, um, but it's a really interesting interview. So uh, hang in there, a couple of station announcements, and we'll be back. <laughs> You're listening to a podcast from Community Radio 3RRR in Melbourne, Australia. I'm speaking now with Toby Hendy, who is a professional YouTuber from Queensland and a former PhD student of the Australian National University. Toby, welcome to RRR. Hi, thank you for having me. Well, it's great to talk to you. I think we connected originally because you read an article that I wrote entitled Why You Should Quit Your PhD, and I'm I'm hoping, given the topic of today is actually that about you quitting your PhD, that my article didn't entice you to do that. No, so I wouldn't blame you or anyone else for giving me the idea to leave. I think it was very much my own decision. And in fact, at the time when I was, you know, torn with making the decision, I didn't even really know of many people talking about this topic or who had done the same thing. Mm. Now, give us a bit of background first. You were enrolled at ANU. What were you doing there with regards to your research work? Yeah, so I was enrolled in a PhD in physics, and I was doing an experimental project working in the lab, actually in an area of biophysics. And we were looking at how plants naturally protect themselves from diseases by detecting a pressure that's applied to them. So from a purely physics perspective, we were trying to study plants in this way. And it's at least a three-year program, but I made it through just about one year before I ended up leaving. Mm. And in terms of that decision, I mean, can you talk us through how you got to that? Because I know there's a variety of reasons why people walk away from their PhDs. And there's also, I suppose, a variety of reasons why people seriously consider that many times during that candidature period but end up not leaving. What what was that for you? I mean, was it just one thing or a series of things? Can you talk us through the decision process? Yeah, so I know that there can be many reasons that would cause someone to want to leave. Sometimes people have a bad supervisor or a work environment that's just really not good for them. But that wasn't the case for me. I actually had really good supervision and a great team. I think for me, it was just the fact that I found my passions to really lie elsewhere. So I started to realize that the thing that my mind would naturally drift towards was not 
my lab work and and how to do better in the lab, it was coming up with kind of cool and creative ideas in science communication. Those were the things I would think about, you know, whenever I had spare time, whether it was falling um, to sleep at night or in the shower, I would be thinking about videos I could make and and things I could write and, and be creative with. So for me, it was a decision to ultimately put all my effort into that stuff and really see what I could do with it um, because I no longer felt you know, so passionate or so interested in, in staying in the lab uh, when I had other things I, I wished that I was doing. Yeah. So in, in terms of the, the career path you've taken, though, it's one that we, we hear about a bit now. There's a lot of professional YouTubers out there, and some of them are making extraordinary amounts of money through the monetization of their, their various um, videos and, and, and materials. What, what does that career look like for you? I mean, I know education is, is a, you know, something very close to your heart, but what, what does this new career look like? Yeah, so I guess there are more and more YouTubers sort of popping up in the world, but it's not exactly something that's been around very long. I think YouTube itself has only been around since about 2006, something like that. So it's quite new. And for me, being a YouTuber, what it looks like is I guess I spend my time either planning and researching videos, you know, filming them, editing them, or putting them up and and doing a few things around that. Um, Through growing my platform on YouTube, it's also given me some other science communication opportunities, like running some little workshops, whether it's for school kids um, or other people, and, you know, just doing a little bit of freelance stuff on the side. But that's really grown out of the audience that I've managed to build, just making videos, you know, talking about science um, and just doing it in a way that, you know, I'm trying to keep it interesting and I'm trying to let my passion for science and for education come across. The way that the business of YouTube works is that you can make uh, money from your videos essentially linked to views through Google's AdSense program, or you can also have sponsors on your videos. And I have a few educational sponsors, which have you know really enabled me to make this possible in the first place. Mm. And and do you do you have any? Uh, you, you have to understand this is someone asking this question you, for which the answer is no. Um, do you have any formal science communication training, or is this just something you've always loved doing and invested the time yourself? Yeah, so I guess the answer for me is no as well, um, in the sense that all of my formal qualifications in the form of degrees are in math or physics. Um, but it's something that I've had to, you know, pick up as I go. I've not just had to learn how to, you know, communicate effectively, but I've also had to learn how to do everything else from editing videos to doing lighting and sound work, um, from, you know, writing scripts to uploading and, you know, marketing and making thumbnails for your videos and all that sort of stuff. So it's kind of like taking on a whole bunch of jobs to try and, you know, run the show yourself. And I don't have formal qualifications in any of those things. They're all things I've taught myself through tutorials or, you know, just on the fly, really. Yeah. I I, I noticed um, looking at a few of your YouTube videos, you you seem to cover quite a variety of topics. What what sort of audience are you going after and and what sort of things do you want to teach them? Because I I suppose one of the great things about the path you've chosen is that this is completely up to you now. Yeah, so I do have a lot of creative freedom, which is great, and I really like that. Um, I think in terms of what I'm trying to do, I really am just trying to show physics and math and these scientific concepts in a bit of a new light, whether that's to inspire people to take more of an interest in these topics or for people who are sort of already interested to you know, show them how they can foster their interest and you know, make them want to learn more. I think for educational YouTubers, there are a couple of different types. And one type would be you know, someone who is a teacher and uploading their lessons. So you might know about the Australian YouTuber Eddie Wu, who is also a teacher, and he uploads recordings from his classroom. Now, I really like um, the work that he does, but I wouldn't say that that's what my channel does um, at all. I'm not, I guess, 
mostly trying to teach or work through specific problems that are relevant to any you know particular curriculum more so I am just trying to show these concepts in quite a general light um, and in just a way that is sort of inspiring I think and I, I'm trying to also show a personal connection to some of these ideas so whether that's me talking about my experiences as a student or me interviewing people you know in these fields and I'm also trying to foster I guess this personal connection that is sort of unique to YouTube where you know people watch you because they like your personality and so that gives you I guess the power to talk about things that might have been considered you know quite dry or boring ideas but to bring them out in a way that people are actually you know willing to learn and, and willing to get involved with yeah and and how big how big is your audience at this point how well are you doing yeah so on youtube we have subscribers as a measure and there i have um, a bit over two hundred thousand subscribers and that corresponds to um, just over 20 million total views on my videos so I, I, it's quite large now but it's really grown in the last year or, or even six months so when I actually left my PhD I did that with around 50,000 subscribers and it's just grown you know quite quickly since then which is why I'm so excited to keep going with it and to see where it can grow to yeah I, I mean it sounds extraordinary I mean you must you, you must compare that at times to what you're able to do in terms of your your physics tutorials and so forth today and you I mean what you'd have like 20 or 30 people in the classroom it, it's it's just a different world isn't it yeah so I, I do have a bit of teaching experience or um, tutoring some undergraduate physics courses when I was at uni and yeah it's it's a very different thing. The reach is just kind of insane and it's kind of hard to comprehend sometimes. Like I've got a few videos now that I've made which have reached over a million views um, individually and that's kind of weird to think about. It's like, well, yes, you've, you've got a lot of eyeballs on this video, um, but it's also a bit hard to measure really how the impact compares to if you were in a you know traditional classroom, you know, you might think, well, maybe people aren't as engaged because it's just online and they didn't have to you know, do any problems or homework associated with it. But I also think that it could be just as impactful or even more impactful because you know, people are choosing to watch it. They're not forced to sit there and watch you. And that means you actually have to try and, and make it engaging and make people want to stay and watch the whole thing. So it's got its its own challenges in that way. But I think that people really do get something from it and, and they are watching these. And I do get a sense of how people are maybe learning or, or finding it from reading the comments. Um, but yeah, it's it's kind of a completely different reach to a conventional classroom. Yeah, are there a couple of topics that you said that one or two of your videos have, um, you know, gone around million views and so forth? What, what have been a couple of topics that either you've really enjoyed doing or that the viewers have just gone nuts about? I mean, was there something that really grabbed them? Yeah, so I would say my most popular series of videos are actually on the topic of unboxing exams. Now, this is kind of a play on what is a really popular genre of videos on YouTube, which is the unboxing genre. And so what that usually is, is um, tech um, reviewers taking, say, the new iPhone and unboxing it in front of people, you know, peeling off the film, unwrapping uh, the components. Um, people really love watching those. They're really popular. And so I've just taken that format and applied it to something pretty random, which is an exam and, you know, taking out exams and showing people what they look like and, you know, how you'd go about solving some of these problems, but trying to do it in a fun way. So, you know, people are interested in seeing exams from around the world, but also from different, you know, periods in time. So one of my most popular videos is a review of an exam from 1866 and seeing how, you know, arithmetic questions were written back then and, and seeing how much has changed. Mm, it, it sounds incredible. I mean, we, we obviously, you and I spoke about one particular exam on 
on your channel and it's 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 bizarre to think that many of these things haven't changed a lot other things have changed significantly but when some of us who have been professional scientists look back at those exams and think gee we probably couldn't pass them anymore um you know there's there's a lot in that i think for people who are first coming in your background though um i suppose makes me think that you know there's such a, a value in scientific careers but also a value in potentially looking at non-traditional pathways beyond you know bachelor and honors degrees i mean you 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 must draw a lot on those original degrees to do this yeah definitely so i do draw a lot on the um, qualifications that i have and i don't think that i could do what i'm doing now you know without having done that yeah i don't regret any of the exams or courses or anything that i took because even though I'm not using them as a scientist per se, you know, all those exams I took are very relevant now to what I'm talking about on my channel, which is essentially helping other people get through their own exams. So I I don't think I could do what I'm doing without, you know, everything I've done. And it also has enabled me now to combine some of my other interests that I thought I had to leave behind. So Throughout studying, you know, physics and math courses, I kind of felt like I had to give up my interests in creative pursuits, that I had to leave behind my interests in filmmaking and writing, and, and um, that I couldn't really merge them together. But what I'm doing now is kind of a perfect merging of these different disciplines. Um, and I feel really grateful to be able to do that now, to, to be able to bring together everything that i've been interested in Hmm. well look toby it's it's fascinating speaking to you um whereabouts do people go to find you online yes so my youtube channel is tibbies spelt t-i-b-e-e-s but if you just type in toby hendy into youtube you'll find your way to my channel as well Toby, it's an absolute pleasure talking to you. Good luck with the ongoing education of a very, very large number of people. And and I know, having watched a few of your videos, you you bring an incredible love of the subject into your videos. It's, It's a bit contagious. So well done. And thanks so much for chatting to us today. Well, thank you very much for having me. Yeah, uh, there we go, folks. There was the interview with Toby. It was it was really interesting talking to her, and uh, she uh, she has a good insight. And I, I know there's only three people listening to this show, so she has a big audience compared <laughs> to us. But uh, did you know that, Laura? Three people: my mum, your mum, and some other random person yeah. in the car. Anyway, thank you, random person. We, appreci- <laughs> we appreciate your support. You're listening to a podcast from Community Radio Three Triple R in Melbourne, Australia. Uh, you are listening to Triple R, folks. It's Einstein and Gago. In a moment, I'm going to play you an interview that we did a few years ago now, just a couple of years ago, with Jane Goodall, an absolutely amazing woman who um, I had the pleasure of chatting to for a short period of time. So uh, without further ado, I'm going to hand you over to this interview. Hope you enjoy it. You're listening to 3 Triple R. I'm Dr. Shane Huntington, and our guest today is Dame Jane Goodall, famed primatologist and incredible environmental activist, Jane, it's wonderful to be speaking to you. Thanks so much for giving us the time today on Triple R. Well, thank you for inviting me. It's good talking to you. Now, um, I'd like to start with some of your sort of earliest uh, memories of science, how you got interested in science. Was there something in particular that drew you in or was it something you were just sort of born with? I was born with a love of animals and wanting to learn about animals. When I was 10, I wanted to go to Africa and live with wild animals and write books about them. Mm -hmm. I had no pretension of being a scientist. I think going back 70 years in England, most most girls didn't think about science really. Uh, But after I'd been lucky enough to meet the late Louis Leakey, and he'd given me the amazing opportunity of going and studying not just any animal but chimpanzees, And then after one and a half years, he told me that I would have to get my own money in the future and that I would need a degree. And there was no time, as he put it, to mess about with the BA. And so he got me a place at Cambridge to do a PhD. And that was my introduction to the world of science, being plunged into Cambridge University. I mean, this is such an incredible story for people hearing it today because the idea of doing a PhD without having done a bachelor's degree these days is probably something that is almost a myth. 
Um, I mean, how do you describe that to people today, That what that experience was like? Well, it was, you know, first of all, I was really scared. I was told I was doing a PhD in ethology. I didn't even know what ethology meant. I mean, mm-hmm. I think scientists love to use words that make it seem very grand. It's just animal behavior, which everybody can understand. But ethology makes it seem, you know, esoteric and, and, and um, very scientific and very important. But anyway, yeah. so when, when I got to Cambridge, I was very nervous of these erudite professors who'd had all this learning. So you can imagine what it was like for me when many of them told me I'd done everything wrong, that the chimpanzee should have had numbers, not names, that wasn't at all scientific, and that they shouldn't be talking about their personalities or their minds capable of solving problems, and I absolutely shouldn't talk about them having emotions. That was the height of anthropomorphic sin, giving human characteristics to non-human animals. Mm. And fortunately, when I was a child, I'd had a teacher, and he had taught me that for all their learning, these scientists in this respect were completely wrong, and that teacher was my dog. Right. (laughs) You can't share your life in a meaningful way with a dog, a cat, a rabbit, a bird, and not know that animals have personalities, minds, and emotions. Yeah, absolutely. When when you think back to those times, uh, I mean, just you're, you're in the environment you were in with the chimpanzees. You, you must have been learning some of these things at an incredible rate about their emotions and and just the level of detail. I mean, can you describe what that was like? Well, at first, it was incredibly frustrating because the moment they saw me, they would run away. Mm. <laughs> It took several months before I could get close enough to see anything except in the distance with my binoculars. And fortunately, one chimpanzee got used to me before the others. David Greybeard, I called him. Mm-hmm. And so if I came upon a group that was ready to run and he was there, he would sit calmly and... The others would look from him to me, and I suppose they thought, well, she can't be so frightening after all. And gradually they came to accept me, and I could get closer. And that's when I really began, you know, once I knew them as individuals, then I began to understand something about their complex social behaviour. Yeah, as as human beings, um, our acceptance in, in our, our normal human environments means a lot to us, but... How did it feel to be accepted into uh, that of another species? I mean, this is quite extraordinary. Yes, I was lucky. Nobody had done it before. Yeah. <laughs> the first time I actually got near a group, I got too close by mistake. I was climbing up a steep uh, sort of ravine, and I misjudged, and I thought I was coming up much further away from this group. And I expected them to run, and they just looked at me calmly and went on grooming and playing. And it was, I felt very, very proud. It was a magical moment. Mm. Were, were there any particular incidents or behaviours that really took you by surprise at the time that you remember now clearly so many years later? Well, the thing that was really significant was when I saw, and again, it was David Greybeard. I saw him using grass stems to fish termites from their nests mm-hmm. and actually picking leafy twigs and um, so to use that as a tool he had to strip the leaves which is the beginning of tool making and if we saw that today it wouldn't be exciting at all but back then it was because it was thought that humans and only humans used and made tools and we were actually defined as man the tool maker mm. so this was what enabled leaky to get money for me to carry on when the first six months money ran out. So, so I suppose you, you did as much for the definition of humans as you did for chimpanzees in that sense, didn't you, in terms of what, what makes us special? Yes, well, you know, first of all, the, the science was showing more and more how chimpanzees resemble us closely biologically. Mm-hmm. So, you know, it was discovered that the composition of DNA of humans and chimps differs by only just over 1%. 
and the structure of the blood, the immune system, the composition of the anatomy of the brain, just so amazingly like ours. So once you tie that in with the behavioral similarities, psychological similarities, you know, the fact that they kiss, embrace, hold hands, the fact that they swagger and shake their fist, mm. the fact that they beg with palm outstretched food, uh, the fact that they show a kind of primitive warfare, but also love, compassion, and altruism. Mm. And, you know, so that, that it's the, because of the chimpanzees, really, that the attitude of science when I went to Cambridge was that the difference between us and all the other animals was one of kind. And the chimpanzees broke that down and made science open its mind. And so, you know, now we realize we are part of and not separated from the rest of the animal kingdom. So it was, it was pretty exciting to see how gradually these, these uh, you know, ideas of mine were gradually accepted into mainstream science. Yeah, I mean, that's an extraordinary paradigm shift that you initiated and witnessed and, and have watched um, transition over, over, over a period. When, when you, you think back to all the emotions that you experienced with the chimpanzees, uh, what, are there emotions that humans have that you don't see in chimps, or are they all there? I think they're... I doubt chimpanzees feel guilt. Mm -hmm. I don't think they feel guilt, but you know, it's it's still people are still learning about emotions because for so long animals weren't supposed to have emotions. There was nobody studying it, mm -hmm. and now now it's a you, you can do PhDs in animal emotion. It's becoming sort of you know, something that PhD students are studying eagerly in more and more different animals. Mm. When, you, when you first returned from your fieldwork, having spent so much time with the chimpanzees, how, how did you perceive humans again? Uh, did you look at them differently? I found I was watching people. <laughs> you know, so before a lecture, I used to be so nervous, and there were usually dinners, and I couldn't eat. I was, I was much too nervous. So I found that I was watching people eating and their behaviors and the way they talked to each other. And it, was, it was definitely something I picked up from observing the chimps, and it was, it was fun, actually. Yeah. yeah. You know, so the, the fact that chimps are more like us than any other living creature, chimpanzees and bonobos, makes you then ask, yeah, but we are different. So what is it that most clearly differs, makes us different? And in my view, it's the explosive development of our intellect, and possibly that in part anyway that was triggered by the fact that at some point in our evolution, we developed the capacity to communicate with words. Mm. So that unlike unlike animals which don't have words, we can teach children about things that aren't present. We can discuss the distant past. We can make plans for the distant future. And probably most important, if there's a major problem to be solved, we can bring, bring people from different backgrounds, different experience, to discuss these problems and try and come up with a solution. Mm. So, you know, the million-dollar question is, how is it possible that the most intellectual creature that's ever walked the planet is destroying its only home. Yeah. So, so when you when you think back to the, the way you did the work at the time, and you think of all the advancements that have happened since then, the, I, I note that one of the things that was so valuable to you was the idea of naming these chimps, not not numbering them. Have we? Have we come in a positive direction in the way we do science with animals in that regard, or do you think we've lost something in the transition with technology? Uh, no, I think technology used widely, wisely is actually helping. We, we, we're using quite a lot of the new technology in the chimpanzee studies. For example, collect feces, and you can, for the first time, work out who the fathers are by doing this. DNA analysis for mm. each individual. We never knew who the fathers were because 
one female can be mated by all the males in her community. So we're also using it to plot out uh, ranges more accurately, plot out the position of the different fruiting trees, and perhaps most important of all, the local villagers are learning how to use i-tablets and smartphones, and they can go and check on the health of their forests, and they're very proud to do this. Mm. You must come up across a lot of people in your, your ongoing work who don't appreciate the need to protect the environment. How, how do you go about changing their views? You know, surprisingly few people uh, don't understand, or perhaps it's the people that I tend to meet, they, they do understand the need for conserving the environment. Certainly all the, the villagers living around the chimp habitats, because we're working in seven different African countries now, and they have destroyed their environment because of human population growth and simply being more people than the land can support without access to ways of, of increasing food production without destroying more and more of the forest. But it isn't that they don't understand, it's just that they don't know what to do about it. And now we have, because we've been working to improve the lives of the people and introduce some ways of restoring fertility to the soil without using uh, chemical fertilizers and so on. They've become our partners, and all the trees that were once gone around Gombe have come back. So these people, instead of seeing us as white, rich people coming in to study chimps and not caring about them, now realize we do care about them. And conservation won't work if you don't. Mm. Do, do you... Do you think there's a, a, a degree of hope at the moment? I mean, when we look at things like the, as you've probably noticed, uh, being here in Australia, the damage to our Great Barrier Reef and others, some of these things are quite extraordinary and action still isn't being taken. I mean, do you have a degree of hope for for us as a species to, to sort our home out, do you think? Well, you know, you mentioned the coral reef, the Barrier, Great Barrier Reef, and then at the same time the government just approved the go-ahead, gave the go-ahead for this enormous coal mine. Yeah. She will definitely uh, add to the pollution of the ocean and the destruction of the coral reef. But the hope is that more and more people are standing up against this development, which, of course, will release uh, hundreds and thousands of tonnes of, of um, carbon dioxide once the coal is taken out of the ground and burned. And I think one of the reasons for hope is social media can, for the first time in history, bring people from far distances who care about an issue so that their voices can be heard. And the swell of voices standing up for protection of the environment is growing all the time. Mm. Now, you've you played no small part in that with regards to the program that you set up for young people coming through and, and learning about that. Give, give us a, a little bit about how that's all going, the, the, um, the program you've got running, and, and how, how many people have you know, come through it over the years? Well, I can't tell you the number of people who've come through over the years. We, it began in Tanzania in 1991, so we're 25 years old, mm. and starting with 12 high school students from nine schools. We're now in 99 countries with approximately um, 150,000 groups, and a group can be a whole school. And we have members from kindergarten through university. And the main message is every single individual matters and has a role to play. Every single one of us makes some impact on the environment every single day and we have a choice what kind of difference we're going to make and right from the start every group of this program Roots and Shoots choose for themselves three different projects or a minimum of three different projects one to make things better for people one to make things better for other animals one to improve the environment around them and so because 
because the kids get to choose what to do. They're very passionate about it. And then they roll up their sleeves and take action. And it's making a huge difference. It's, uh, it's helping young people understand the problems, listening to them and empowering them. I mean, my, in my experience, Jane, the uh, the kids seem to get this a lot quicker than many of the adults. Is that is that your experience as well? Yes, I think so. And they're and they're actually influencing their parents and grandparents as yeah. well. I mean, they they learn about it early on and they can see what's happening. Whereas when I was young, um, there was you know we weren't destroying the planet like we are today. I mean, of course, in some areas we were, but. You know, you asked about hope, and I think it's the young people who understand the problems and are taking action uh, are my greatest hope because they're so enthusiastic and and determined and and uh, sometimes courageous too in, in tackling these problems pro- 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 projects. And um, you know, my next reason for hope is the innovative technological solutions that we are creating with our amazing brains like clean green energy and so on and the way that we're thinking about the consequences of the little choices we make each day what we eat what we buy what we wear where did it come from how was it made did it harm the environment did it cause cruelty to animals or child slavery or something like that and do we need it you know that's using our brain and when millions of people make the correct ethical choices, even if they're tiny choices, it's going to start making a major difference. And then there's the resilience of nature. Destroy a place, give it time, and very often life can return and become a habitat for animals again. And then there's, well, social media, which I already mentioned. And then there's what I call the indomitable human spirit, the people who tackle the impossible and won't give up. Mm. Jane, this might be a hard question to answer, but what's the sort of proudest moment of your life in terms of some of the amazing achievements you've had? I mean, many of the people listening, I don't think you need any introduction to them. They're they're incredibly um, proud of the things you've done over the years and the role you've played. But to you personally, what's mattered the most? You know, it's really difficult to answer that question. I suppose... The, the, you know, the early discoveries about the chimpanzees, the fact that there's different kinds of mothering, gradually learning how the chimpanzees who have the good supportive mothers do better, that takes place over time. It isn't something which suddenly you learn. And, you know, even the tool using, it was very exciting to see David Graybeard using and making tools. But it's far more exciting to realize that chimpanzees in different parts of Africa use objects in different ways and have their own cultures because, you know, behavior passed from one generation to the next through observation and learning. So it's, it's hard for me to pick one aspect over, over any of the others. It's a cumulative effect of learning about these amazing beings. Mm. Now, if you had your choice of exploring our deepest oceans or outer space, Mars, other other planets, and you had to pick one, which one would it be? I'd pick the deepest oceans because it's near at hand and there's still so much to learn. Mm. Now, I think we've um, we've taken up probably enough of your time. You're you're here in Australia for how long? It's about it's about three weeks. Okay, we will put all the details of your shows. Uh, especially in Melbourne, up on our website and link those up. Jane, it's been an absolute privilege speaking with you today and thanks so much for taking the time and have a great time here in Australia. Well, thanks very much. It was good speaking to you and all of, the, all of those listening. Hello to you and goodbye. You're listening to a podcast from Community Radio 3 RRR in Melbourne, Australia. 
Uh, you are listening to Triple R, folks. It's Einstein and Gogo. We're almost at the end of the show, but uh, Dr. Laura has some very important puppy information. Very important puppy information. This study <laughs> really spoke to me, um, and it was published in very reputable journal, PNAS, um, and it showed that puppy dog eyes may have evolved so that dogs can better communicate with humans. Hey, so what? <laughs> what does that mean? Okay, so um, basically the researchers, and this was um, coming out of the UK, they, um, di- they looked at the differences between the facial structures of wolves and domestic dogs. Okay. And what they found when they dissected their, their heads and looked at their um, anatomical structure is that the only difference that there was between domestic dogs and wolves is an extra muscle that allows dogs to raise their eyebrows. And this was in all domestic dogs today apart from huskies. Yep. Um, and what they... Um, oh, well, I see. I, I used to own... Huskies. Oh, maybe Siberian Huskies. Maybe it's because you're a bit. Are you not that soft, or? <laughs> no, but they. I, I, yeah. Well, they weren't raising their eyebrows. They don't raise their eyebrows. They don't. So they lack this muscle. Wow. And um, sort of by kind of you know. So this study, what they predicted is that with this eyebrow, of course, it makes the dog's eyes larger, it makes more infant-like, and it kind of this this sort of like raising your eyebrow, it kind of really speaks to humans. You know, it makes you melt, it makes you want to take care of dogs. And um, what the researchers sort of you know took away from this study is that you know this may have really um, pushed the selection bias of what domestic dogs we have today, because humans um, would have gone for the dogs who would have started to evolve this muscle, and it's those sorts of dogs you know, that we have now, the, the cute ones, the ones that make you melt, the ones that you want to look after, and it's these dogs that would have get, got bred and so forth. That's, that's fascinating. I'm a bit disturbed that my dogs didn't have this, but I I'm still love di- them. Yeah, I know. Yeah, yeah I was going to go a bit disturbed that you didn't go for the dogs that, you know, speak to you emotionally and sort of, you know, melt your heart. But no, what am I saying? I, I freaking love huskies. They're beautiful. They're beautiful dogs. But I, I don't remember ever thinking that they didn't have that, that, that feature in their face. But, you, you know... How do you tell? Um, you know, if you're an emotional... Anyway. Uh, so, yeah, that's, that's fascinating. It's interesting to see that, you know, when you go back and look at what would have caused that choice, evolutionary. Yeah, and just if it's just a subset, and then yeah. that influences the selection of the domestication that we have of dogs today. God. Well, I'm going to be looking at dogs' eyebrows now. Every I time I look at a dog, and it gives me one of those sad faces, they, I'm going to say, look, it's an evolutionary advantage, and I'm not paying attention to it. They have evolved to manipulate you. They have. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> <laughs> they have. They have. Uh, to be fair, though, so have a lot of other things like viruses and you know, all these things. Are yeah, really everybody's hijacking either our emotions or our bodies for their own resources. <laughs> having yeah, a good, having we're a good, being used. Having a good day, are we, Laura? <laughs> uh, folks, on that note, <laughs> I hope you're enjoying your lunch or your breakfast or your brunch. We're going to have to leave it there and hand over to the team from Eat It, who I can see already over there in the other studio. Uh, no doubt a big uh, show coming up. Thank you so much for listening to another hour of science. Dr. Laura, good to see you and uh, hope you're okay. Pleasure. Pleasure <laughs> to be here. <laughs> uh, we're going to give you some more science again next week. It is going to be a big month of July because it is the 50th anniversary of the Apollo moon landing of Neil Armstrong and Buzz Aldrin. And we're going to be having a whole lot of really cool guests who are related to space in some way. They won't all be from the Apollo era, I can tell you that. But uh, some really interesting people from a variety of fields across that theme. So that's going to be a lot of fun. Until then, have a great Sunday. Remember, science is everywhere. And thanks for listening to Triple R. This has been a podcast from 3RRR 102.7 FM in Melbourne. Truly independent community radio. Want to hear more? Check out our website at rrr.org.au.